0: Good morning everyone. Glad to see you all this morning. A few quick announcements before we get rolling. First off, want to make sure that if you are new or if you've joined in the last couple weeks or if you've been listening online, I had a couple people tell me they've been listening online and they're finally going to be able to start coming. We've got these little bookmarks that are good for one more week and they are outside the doors um, of the chapel as you leave and you will note that December 13th, a week from today, is the last of our Bible studies until after the new year. So just, you know, December 13th, that's it. Don't show up the week after that. We won't be here. Um, So just mark it down. Make sure you know December 13th. We've got one more before the end of the year, and then we're back the second week of January. And you will all get an email confirming that unless... You have never gotten an email from me about this Bible study. If you have not, then please stop on your way out. You can do one of two things. Stop on your way out up here with me or use one of our comment cards in the pews to drop your name and email address. So we will add you to our list. Even if the church has your email address, we don't just put people in this class if they've not signed up. And so do let us know that you're here, that you want to receive the emails. We don't send many, maybe once a week, but we will confirm when the next class will start. And I would love to tell you that off the top of my head, but my head doesn't work that way. I'm thinking it's the 9th. Is that a Wednesday? 10th. It's probably the 10th. We will confirm with you over email. You can pencil that in. It will not be the 2nd or 3rd or whatever that is. Um, 3rd, right? Not the 3rd. Give yourself an extra week. We'll come back on the 10th. Um, I do want to say that we have gotten some good prayer requests on these cards. And so this is also a great way to send prayer requests or questions you would like asked in class or answered in class, but you don't necessarily just want to ask in the middle of things. And so do submit these. We love to receive them. Leave them on either table or hand them to me before the class is over. The Lord be with you. (laughs) Let us pray. God, we ask that you be present with us, especially during this Bible study today. Calm our hearts and minds and make space for us for your Spirit to fill in. We ask you today, especially for this Advent season, to keep in your prayers all those who will be traveling, all those who will be facing this holiday without a loved one for the first time, and those who are sad to face a holiday once again without someone they love. We ask your prayers especially for Bob, Wilbur, Taylor, David, Melanie, Liz, and for all those who are in recovery, particularly this holiday season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (laughs) Chapter 8. Chapter 8 of Luke is a good, good chapter. I know I say that all the time, but it's always true. So, chapter 8. We've got four specific sections that I will highlight up here so we know where we're going. Our little map. The first section we have deals with the parable of the sower. Second section after the parable of the sower is calming of the storm. Then we have the healing of the demoniac, which is a great word. And then finally, what I'm calling girl restored, woman healed. If you haven't figured it out already, Lots happens in each chapter of Luke. And so this week we're not going to necessarily touch on every single verse, but we're gonna try and hit the highlights so we can actually get through it all. The first is the parable of the sower, and before we get into the parable of the sower, a word on two literary techniques that we see in this chapter of Luke. The first is one we're very familiar with, parables right? Parables are stories that are meant to communicate a moral or a spiritual lesson, right? What's the moral of that story? That's the classic question you can ask at the end of a parable. So parables are great stories on their own, but they are not just stories. They are meant to really teach us something. And when, hey, Joan, will you pull that door closed? Thank you. They are meant to teach us something. So never hear a parable of Jesus and just move on, right? Always ask, what is he trying to do here? And something just to note, when we look at scripture, especially narrative scripture bits, verses and chapters can often hinder our understanding of things, right? Just remember, chapter verse designations were done after These people wrote this stuff, right? They did not put that in. They did not divide sections, the people who wrote these stories. The divisions were made much later by people who were hoping to make it easier to reference, right? It's really difficult to say the 54th paragraph of Luke, right? (laughs) Instead, you can say chapter 5, verse 6 or something like that, right? It's much, much easier to jump right to a certain spot. But because we have delineated these, it's sometimes easy to think chapter seven is over, and now it's chapter eight, almost like you're reading a novel. It's not that way. Especially today with the parable, what we're gonna see is that Jesus is really unpacking stuff that happened in chapter seven and preparing people for what will happen in the future, maybe even in this chapter. So just a word on a parable. The other literary technique I want to note is what is sometimes called a sandwich. Mark, the gospel of Mark, is really classic for this. And so most scholars call it a Markan sandwich. But sandwiches are used in other gospels as well. And what I mean by a sandwich is where you almost get an ABA pattern in a story. A story begins and halfway through is interrupted and this other random story is interjected and then the first story concludes. So you get almost part one of story A, then story B, then part two of story A. That is not an accident. The evangelists are not bored with the first story, but instead they're always trying to illuminate something deeper in both stories. It's often that that middle story, the meat of the sandwich, is meant to help us understand the bread, so to speak. Luke doesn't do this as much, but we get an example of it today. And so there are different ways you can call this. I'm gonna call it a double story because it's not only Mark. And so these double stories should not also be missed, right? It's not like you turn your brain off, listen to a second one and get back to the first one. They're really meant to inform each other. We'll see both techniques used today. The first is the parable technique, parable of the sower. We should know this story pretty well. Parable of the sower is a simple one. The guy goes out, sows seeds, the seeds fall on four different kinds of surfaces, right? First is the path, the seeds are trampled and the birds eat it. The second is the rock, and the seeds sprout, and they start off doing pretty well, but they have no sustenance, nothing to keep them going because they're on the rock, and so they die. The third, they land among the thorns. Again, they start off sprouting a little bit, But then the thorns choke them out. The fourth being good soil. And when the seeds fall on the good soil, they are not only sustained, but they thrive and they multiply. This parable is not that obtuse, all right? It's not super hard to understand what Jesus is getting at with this parable. However, I want us to consider how it connects to some of the action at the end of chapter seven. So at the end of chapter seven, remember that Jesus is, again, preaching, teaching, and he's telling the story of the way that people are receiving his message, right? The critical moment for me comes with John the Baptist, right? It's one thing for Jesus to meet a stranger or someone who may not know what's going on and then to try and help them understand. It's something totally different when John the Baptist, who is supposed to know what's going on, somehow seems to question Jesus's motives. And in chapter seven, we had this moment where John sent his messengers to Jesus and said, are you the guy? Or are we supposed to be waiting for someone else? And in that moment, we hear summed up the criticism that Jesus would have been receiving from lots of people in the area, that criticism basically being, the Messiah is supposed to do X, Y, and Z. Overthrow the Romans, overthrow the high priest, restart all the good stuff, reconnect us to God, you name it. And Jesus was not doing the physical, worldly stuff that they expected the Messiah to do. And so even John the Baptist is wondering if he's the guy right after those stories and right after jesus has the experience remember we talked about last week with the woman who is forgiven right the sinful woman who comes in and is so overwhelmed by being in jesus's presence that she just makes a sloppy mess all over the place and jesus points to her in simon's house and said she gets it right you who should absolutely know what's going on, has missed the point. And then immediately, right, forget the chapter designation, Jesus tells this parable. It's not a standalone, but a continuation. John questions Jesus, Simon questions Jesus, and this random sinful woman seems to know. And so then Jesus turns right around and tells the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower really is an affront on what we might think is good soil, but we would be wrong. Jesus is really trying to redefine what the world thinks is good so that we get to understand what God thinks is good. Any questions about that before we move on to some woman stuff. (laughs) Questions or thoughts? So you might note at the beginning of chapter 8 that Jesus, or that Luke, specifies that there are some women among Jesus' followers. If you don't have your Bibles, no judgment, um, (laughs) Luke says The 12 were with Jesus, right? So disciples, apostles, so to speak, are there. And in addition, some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, and Susanna. Mary, Joanna, and Susanna are named as part of Jesus's inner circle, I don't, I don't want to harp on this every week, but I do want to note that is how exceptional that would be, right? Not only is Jesus doing stuff that he's not supposed to with the authorities, not only is he cleansing people who are ill, raising people from the dead, but he is, God forbid, hanging out with women. And naming those women means that Luke wants us to know just how countercultural Jesus really was, right? We've talked about Jesus being a rabble rouser. This is very much going against the culture, right? It's one thing for women to kind of be hanging around. It's another thing for them to be named explicitly like this. And so don't gloss over it with our modern eyes, but really note This is exceptional. Not only is this exceptional, but we know that Mary becomes critical to the work that Jesus' disciples do. Mary is, in some accounts, the first person to see the risen Christ, right? What happened at the end of chapter seven? What's that story about? The sinful woman. Many scholars think that could very well be Mary. Not named, so we can't be certain. But many think that it's not an accident that the story with the sinful woman happens and then immediately these women are named. And we already know from other accounts, Mary Magdalene would have not, so, you know, Mary's gotten a bad rap. Mary is not the kind of person we might... She's not a streetwalker, right? I mean, I grew up thinking Mary was, was that, right? Um, and th- this is not who she was. However, she lived outside the parameters of good Jewish woman, right? And so for... Most women did, by the way. But Mary was certainly not perhaps the upstanding Jewish woman that many would expect Jesus to talk with and walk with. So Mary's not some evil person. She's, even, she's not even really portrayed as worse than most. She's just outside the box. And that is a recurring theme, right? I mean, if there's anything that Jesus does, it's go outside the box, right? And so Mary fits exactly what Jesus does. All the people that Jesus tends to pull to him, Mary's in that line. I think that it's interesting to note, though, as we, can, as we look at the way that chapters aren't necessarily divided, that the story may be pointing to Mary's experience with Jesus as the moment when she really becomes his follower. And so these women are noted, and that's all I'm gonna say about that. So any questions or comments before we move on to the storm? There's a moment in this chapter, if you haven't read it yet, there's a moment where Jesus is confronted with his family. There are a few notes to make about this. So he tells the parable of the sower, and then Jesus is sitting around teaching. And it says, his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, presumably by his followers, the people on the inner side, hey, your mother and brothers are off standing outside waiting to see you. And Jesus said to them, his followers, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Dang. Um, Jesus just threw some shade at his mom and his brothers. Um, we, a couple notes. Mother and brothers. This is, the mom, this is the moment I referenced near the beginning of our study together, when the word for brother is not the word for, like, we are brothers and sisters— but the word for biological brothers. And so this is one of those examples where scholars say, it is probably likely that Mary, as a good Jewish woman, would have had children after Jesus, right? If we don't, if that does not feel good, then don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. Um, but just, just <laughs> note it, right, this is, this is that moment. Um, but what really is happening here is that Jesus is beginning to define who the followers are, right? Who are the people within the kingdom that he is beginning to develop? One would assume those kinds of relationships, you know, parent and sibling, are as intimate as we really have. Like if you were to give me the four or five hierarchical relationships in our lives, right? Parent and sibling is there. And Jesus just sort of throws it aside and says, they may be biological mother and brothers, but my true mother and brothers or my true family are the ones who hear the word of God and respond. That's a big moment. And we don't know what else happens, right? So, what, like marrying and the boys just, well, I don't know, go home? We, we don't know. The story's over. That's all that is said about it. But we should note that it's not just an ugly thing, right? But it's something that is very kingdom-centric. I think we've said before that relationships that we have, the way that the world values relationships can be helpful And it can also hinder us. If we think about the people in our lives who fall into those very intimate categories, how many of us prioritize a Christian identity over the biological relationships? I dare say no one in this room does, right? Maybe we have an exception. Mary's sweet, she probably does. But you know, There are. This is a really hard idea, and it's easy for us to just kind of toss it aside as Jesus being Jesus, right? I mean, there are plenty of times where Jesus says that thing, and we're like, oh, Jesus, you know. (laughs) That's not—we should not do that. I, I, I would invite you to maybe take this, kind of put it in your pocket for now, and turn it over in your mind this week. What does this mean to you? Theoretically, we can define it. Theologically, we can define it, but how about to you, right? When you fight with your kids, your spouse, your siblings, your parents, when you fight with those people, and when that fight crosses a line that then begins to affect your Christian identity, what do you do? How do you handle this? Is it something that you ignore because they are more important than Jesus? It's a tough thing because we have been told that to be most faithful to our immediate family is to be the good person. Jesus here in this two verses is truly challenging that paradigm does not mean that we should be judgmental necessarily, but insofar as people raise us up or put us down as followers of Jesus, we should take seriously whether they remain close or not. People who build us up, build us up not just in our own self-worth, right? I am not talking we haven't really gotten into this in this class, but maybe one day we'll talk about self-esteem because I'm not a fan. Um, But (laughs) I'm not talking about the idea that you feel good, right? And Jesus is not concerned with whether we feel good. That is not a thing. That's not a kingdom principle, feeling good. Jesus is concerned, though, that we have our priorities right? And the priorities, I'll tell you the story, so I counsel lots of couples before they get married and one of the things that I do pretty much every single time I counsel any couple is I ask them to go and think about the priority of their roles in their life, right? Think about how you relate to other people and your role and give me a top three to five, right? Depending on where you are, how many you have, and inevitably in the hundred-something couples I've counseled for weddings, I've only ever had one person, not one couple, one person come back and put as their number one a disciple. That's it. Because we don't even think about it, right? We immediately think it's daughter, son, spouse, or fiance. At that point, they're not parents yet, but, you know, theoretically, they'd be a mother or father or something like that, right? Brother, sister. Those are the ones that we try to figure out. And then I can, you can tell when they've really wrestled, like, is it most important that I'm a son or a brother, right? And they really think that that's a major distinction, but they don't come back with anything about discipleship. And I think that that shows that, broadly speaking, we really miss the first priority of our life, which is to be a disciple. When we are a disciple first, first before spouse, before parent, before sibling, child, you name it, anything else, the order of our life becomes right. And that's really what Jesus is pushing on in this little throwaway moment, is the idea of what is most important? What is our priority of identity? And so put that in your pocket, roll around with it this week, and see what really feels hard. Um, Whenever I read scripture, if I prepare a sermon or something, usually it's for sermons, I'll read a passage and whichever part of the passage I don't like most, that's what I go and do. Because there's something about it, if I don't like it, then I have to figure out what it's really meaning, right? And this is one of those moments where through this entire chapter, we can probably like most of it. This is one of those moments where we probably don't like it. So don't run from that, but maybe lean into it. Okay, calming, yes ma'am. Me. I had trouble Sure. Could it also be? No. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> Could it be what? Okay. Sure, so the question is, Uh, Is your question that he would expand the idea of family and that there is equality among, say, doing something for Mala or doing something for your grandkids? Right. I mean, that that's the same. Um, I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to interpret it. And I think some traditions might interpret it that way. I don't think that Jesus is saying as plainly that your actual family is not important. No, I don't mean that, I don't mean that. We have to prioritize, right? Just logistically, we can't be everywhere all the time doing everything for everyone, right? So what is that priority? How I interpret this is more of what is core, what is the motivator of our actions, right? If the motivator of our action to do something nice for our grandkids is so they will be happy, that's probably not right. So that they will feel loved seems better so that they might understand the holy love of God seems best. You see, uh, there's sort of a sliding scale of the way that that works. And much of what we do has to do with what people would expect of us or think of us. And I think that most people, this is probably not fair, but it's also not wrong. I think that women in particular have a higher awareness Of the way people perceive them, and that is very affecting when it comes to decisions about how to prioritize time and actions. And part of what I I do a Tuesday morning moms preschool moms group, and I know I hate I don't mean to sound manipulative, but I know that if I if I say one of a handful of things, they will immediately cry. Um, I mean, it it is just, because it is, and I do it often because there's something about kind of like striking right at the center of of something to then you kind of like break through the wall and then we can actually have a conversation, right? Um, I don't want to, it's, it's not hurtful, but there are a handful of things that are super tender, right? And most people don't talk about those things. Well, I will. And I'll drill right into things like, I mean, the other day we talked about miscarriages, right? And struggle to get pregnant. Boom. I mean, talk about waterworks, right? Because everybody, and so let's, let's name it. We all get it, right? Women get it in a very tangible way, but also husbands. We totally get that. And so let's jump over the hurdle of politeness and really kind of vet the struggle, right? And so we also do the same thing with parenting because most young parents particularly, but I know lots of you know, parents of older kids and even kids out of the house, they have never shifted from doing something for their kids because their kids want it done to doing something for their kids because it's a good thing for them. That seems like a simple shift, but God, I mean, I don't know how many times I talk to people and I think, why do you do that? And they say, because they want it. So what? (laughs) Who cares? You know, I mean, if we were to say, and I I use this as a great example, Um, we were, I won't say which sister's family we were with, um, but we were with that family and, we said, let's go to dinner. You know, we should go to dinner tonight. Great. My children would never even offer a suggestion about where to go. I don't care where they wanna go to dinner. <laughs> they're going to dinner. Like they're not buying my dinner. So they're <laughs> going where I'm going, right? So, I mean, but it's, it's that simple sort of thing where that, no, whereas the other kids immediately, it's this or this or this or this or this or this, and the parents are like, actually concerned to acknowledge their desire to pick a restaurant. Stop, right, please. Um, it's that kind of, which certainly, you know, puts me in a certain category of parent, right? Um, but there, I think there is the, the sense within our culture that making people happy Is actually most important, and it really is not. It is not a bad thing. If people are happy because of the love you show them, that is super. No problem. But if you're doing some the wrong thing in order that they are happy, I'm just gonna say that's that's not right. And Jesus would, (laughs) Jesus would agree. No, but (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. like, okay, crazy. Well, and there are, our culture would say, good, what a, a parent, that parent cares for their kid, right? But I think that we can say there is a gr- higher good, right? And this is all, it's perception and values and, you know, sliding scale stuff, right? So no one person has the answer to this, which is one of the reasons why, and you hear me say this all the time, that's why we have a church right? Many of our friends might be fun people, and we like them, but they are not actually making us better Christ followers. Friends that do affect us in that way, actually help us follow Jesus better, they're the ones that we have to nurture (laughs) because—how am I going to say (laughs) this?— It's often the people who make us better Jesus followers that aren't the most fun. I mean that is that is not always the case. That's not always the case but you know it's a whole lot more fun for someone to let you do the stuff that you're not supposed to do but is kind of like is kind of fun but the person who says no seriously you should not do that and and it be not dumb stuff right but but actual like character-building, moral-centric stuff, they're the ones that love you in a deeper way, right? And we should nurture those relationships and check ourselves with it, which is why having those kind of ho- holy friends are important because none of us in a vacuum can decide how we are a spouse, how we are a parent, how we are a sibling or a friend or anything. But when we've got some friends together and we all know each other's hearts, right, that we are all kind of prioritizing the same way, then you can check it with a friend and say, I'm thinking about saying this to my son because he did that. And if they agree, you're probably in the right zone, right? And if they say, what are you thinking? Then check it, right? Because you trust them in a way that gives them a bit more authority when it comes to moral response to the world. I'm sorry, we've gotten way off base, Nancy. Yeah. Well, so... Right, what we do, right? Do what I say, not what I do, right? Oh my gosh, we're great at that. Um, there was an. Do, do you all know what The Onion is, right? The satire. It's a, sat, it's, it's a satirical online news site, right? Nothing is real and it's all hilarious. And there was a, an article a couple years ago. The headline of the article was something like Parents of Young Adult Shocked at child's lack of church attendance after going to church regularly two or three times a year. (laughs) And that has always stuck with me because I don't know how many times I have conversations with people who want something for their kids that they don't do. And I think, how in the world would your child have a certain priority that you don't have? That's an exceptional thing, right? And obviously, parents are not the only people or effects on their children, but they're the primary. And parents have a huge amount of influence, but you've got to do it, right? You can't say things like, gosh, I wish you'd go to church when you, the parent doesn't, or you name it, right? Run down that whole list. And I think that that's, It's a real thing, and yes. So I'm not sure that you're saying something different. I mean, I like what you said both ways. I think a difference in what you're saying is just semantic, right? Putting Jesus first versus putting your integrity first. I don't know that we as Christian people have some kind of integrity apart from Christ. That's maybe how I would respond to that. First is more what I'm saying. Okay, that's an interesting distinction. So the distinction being putting Christ first or the teachings first? So I had a professor once who said most churches, especially mainline churches, <coughs> teach what Jesus taught. And what people really need is Jesus. And Episcopalians are really great at this. How often do you hear sermons about Jesus's teachings? But how often do you hear sermons about Jesus? That sounds a bit evangelical, right? Good, that's really what it comes down to. We don't, Jesus's teachings are great as a way of understanding that our trust is in Christ. I mean, it is, it is Jesus at the core. All of the teachings that he gives are great ways of applying, trying to live the faith, right? Because we're never going to get it right, but we can keep trying, right? And we make this mistake, and maybe we'll hopefully make a better mistake in the future. That's really all we've got. If Jesus is at the core, though, then we've ordered ourselves properly, and so I would say that resist the idea that, Jesus, that God wants us to just live like Jesus, right? It's not quite good enough. Living like Jesus is a great result of actually our faith being in Christ. And that's a, that's, that's a very nuanced distinction. But I think there's a difference between just being good and trying to follow Jesus. The effect on the surface might not look that different, but I think our starting place is different and that that starting place matters because where we start puts us on a particular trajectory. Okay, that was my fault. We got to pull it in, right? Back to the lesson. So thank you for that. And now we've got... 15 minutes. Okay. So calming the storm is exactly, is an example of what we just were talking about. Faith in Christ, right? We know the story. Hopefully we know the story. Jesus has decided he's going to go across the lake, right? And we've talked a little bit about how the Lake Genesaret, Sea of Galilee, same difference, is really just a big lake. And it's an old volcanic lake. So it's got a lot of depth. And it also is sort of in a valley. So the wind can come up fast, Right? It can go from calm to a storm really quickly. Jesus gets in the boat with, presumably, these fishermen, right? So if, these, if the people he's on the boat with are fishermen, they're not easily scared, right? They understand how the lake works. And still, this windstorm that sweeps up is so dramatic that it even scares them. And I love the scene where, I mean, can you imagine them yelling at each other, pull that, lean here, or get over there, or whatever. And then someone turns and they're like, what is he doing? Jesus is just asleep, right? You know those people, they just sleep through anything, right? And so Jesus is there asleep, and not only is he just sleeping through the storm, but he's also sleeping through their freakout, right? They had to be yelling at each other and telling each other, like, don't die, don't fall over the board, you know, all that sort of stuff. Jesus is not only sleeping through the wind, he's sleeping through their yelling. They go to him and they say, what are you doing? We are dying here, right? And Jesus just calmly gets up and says, don't you have any faith? In essence, look at what I have been doing. I have raised people from the dead, dummy, right? (laughs) What storm is going to threaten you that I cannot handle? Now, there is that physical truth, right? The physical truth of the storm's not gonna get you. But there's this much deeper spiritual truth. Where is your faith? Luke is an excellent storyteller. These stories are not independent, right? We have seen over and over again, your faith healed you, right? Your faith healed you, your faith healed you. We just see Jesus say right before this story, my mother and brothers are here, right? What defines a person is not biology, but what is most important to them. And if it's God's kingdom, then we're in it together. And then, after seeing all that stuff, these people are still afraid of a storm. And it's frustrating, right? Jesus says, God, can you not figure this out? And Luke is much more charitable to the disciples than some, right? If any of you have ever studied Mark, man, Mark beats up on the disciples. He basically, he all but says, and the dumb disciple asked again. I mean, you know, that's... (laughs) That's basically what he says over and over and over again. And so Luke doesn't quite do that, but there is this sense that the people who have been seeing what Jesus has done over and over and over again have still not figured it out. And then, remember, all connected, we get to healing the demoniac. So Jesus gets across the lake and he goes to a Gentile area. We, not only should we, we, would we know that it's Gentile area, non-Jew, right, Gentile area, because it's across the lake, which geographically means it's not Israel anymore, but what does he see? What are the animals he sees? Pigs. No Jew is keeping pigs, okay? So he is in an area that is non-Jewish, and he comes across a man possessed by many demons. And what do the demons say? I know who you are, right? The demons see Jesus and says, we know who you are, son of the most high God. His disciples just freaked out about a storm. And then these demons don't even speak to Jesus don't even hear Jesus speak, sorry, before they recognize who he truly is. That is not an accident. Luke is creating this cosmic reality where the people you would least expect to understand what's going on, get it. So these demons called legion tell Jesus, we know who you are, don't hurt us. They say, don't send us back to the abyss, which is very provocative, like wherever they came from, the abyss, right? And we get this, we probably immediately go to this Dante style image of, you know, heaven and hell and that sort of stuff, right? Which is not exactly what's going on here, but good enough. So Legion says, don't send us to the abyss. Instead, send us into those swine. And so Jesus, Luke says, Jesus grants them their request right? Go on, and so the demons leave this man, they go into the swine, and the swine proceed to run off a cliff. The abyss, abyss, right? They get drowned in the lake. This is so weird, okay? There's nothing about the story that isn't strange, except don't try and parse out demon possession and all of that sort of stuff. Instead, hold up really the two major groups of characters in these last two stories, disciples and demons. And who gets Jesus? The demons. That's a, that is really a criticism of the way that we perceive the world, right? Even though we see God's truth right in front of us, we can still not get it. Yet these other non-human things understand who Jesus really is. Any, any quick question about that because we don't have a lot of time. No exorcism questions? Thank you, great. <laughs> so <clears throat> the man who is cleansed of the demons then says to Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus' response is, you don't need to follow me. What you need to do is go home and tell everyone what God's done for you. And this is just really kind of a beautiful moment. Jesus resists what most of us could not, which is that kind of fame and admiration and loyalty. You know, why would Jesus not create this massive following, right? And be cool and be popular. Jesus doesn't want any of that because it's not about Jesus. It's about God. And Jesus says, and this is not an accident again, Luke writes, Jesus told the man to go back to his home and tell them what God had done for them. And the man went home proclaiming what Jesus had done. See that flip? Jesus says, go tell people about God but the man goes and tells people about Jesus. There are two ways we can interpret this. Well, that's not true. There are two ways I'm going to interpret this. The first is, there is this simpatico understanding of Jesus and God, right? And that Luke is somehow implying a subtle Trinitarian understanding of Jesus and God. Although, The inspiration that Luke received to write the gospel could conclude that he understood Trinitarian theology before most. That is probably not true. What Luke is probably trying to express here is really a second idea, and that is God works in the world. But we experience God through Christ. That is really what I think Luke is getting at. Put down your Trinitarian dogma stuff. That is, I don't think that's what Luke is doing. I think what Luke is really getting at is in time, these people are experiencing the full, complete truth of God through the person of Jesus. But for us, we do that in a more spiritual sense, right? We may not be walking and talking with Jesus on earth, but when we glimpse and experience the whole truth of God, we do so through Christ. (sighs) Whatever, I'll say this. this. This kind of story moment is why, for me, I am very comfortable saying there are plenty of people who do not have a Christian identity who do sense some truth of God, but it's not the whole truth of God, right? People who do good, who experience love, who have no Christian identity, I think are truly sensing something godly. But it is through Christ that we actually get the whole revelation. That takes a lot of unpacking potentially, but I'm just gonna kind of leave that with you. Um, This this is, in essence, part of what would be my kind of interpretation of say global religions, right? Non-Christian traditions, I would argue, have some kind of godliness about them, but that it's through Christ where we get the whole revelation, right? The full complete picture So don't ask me questions about that. Okay, (laughs) so moving on real fast. The final story here is what I talked about before, which is the double story, right? The kind of sandwich story here in Luke, which is a Jewish leader comes running up to Jesus and says, my daughter's sick and dying. Would you please come and heal her? On the way, somebody in the crowd touches Jesus's garments and is healed. What's remarkable about this story, we'll pause there, the Jewish leader has figured out that Jesus is legit, right? And it's the desperation of hitting the bottom, right? There's very little hit the bottom, I would say more so than your child's about to die, right? I mean, that's about as desperate as I think a person can be. And so this Jewish leader who may have, on a good day, been able to, you know, lift his nose to Jesus as some guy who's not doing it right. When his daughter's about to die, he does know Jesus heals people. And so he's going to go do the best he can and try and save her. Jesus' response is not to be ugly or to point fingers or to somehow say, should have followed me earlier, right? (laughs) But instead, he's going to go help this man, right? And on the way, this woman touches Jesus' clothes and is healed of her hemorrhaging. Jesus' response is what I think the most provocative thing about this story. He says, who touched me? I felt the power leave me. That's an incredible thing to say, right? I think that for most of us, including me, <clears throat> we resist this idea of Jesus almost seeming like magic, right? Which is one of the reasons why I don't like moving my hands a lot on the altar because I always resist it looking like Presto changeo Eucharist, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't, <clears throat> I don't like that kind of thing. Um, and, and yet, here we get a story where Jesus, Jesus apparently has power that is like taken from him, and he can feel it, almost like a cell phone battery, you know, or something, like someone sucked a little bit out. And in this moment, what we see is that this woman, her faith is what healed her. Jesus didn't intentionally do anything all along the way, Luke gives us, it's like he turns the crystal, and we see the same truth from different angles. And here's another example of the way God can work for us. We've seen it a few different ways, right? Where Jesus, somebody expresses faith, and Jesus says, because of your faith, you are healed, or your loved one is healed. We have also seen where there was no expression of faith, right? Remember the dead body being carried out of the city? And Jesus just walks up out of sympathy, grace, and just raises the person, right? You've got faith, explicit faith in relationship with God. You've got nothing but grace. And here you've got something different. You've got a woman's faith without this exchange from Jesus, and yet still she was healed. And it's it's nothing more than to note. Faith works in many different ways, right? We can't nail it down in one specific way because here we are only in chapter 8 of one gospel. And we've seen three very different ways that people are healed. And it's Luke continues to just turn the crystal. Again, not an accident. Luke is too good. In certain other books, maybe it's an accident. But Luke's language is so precise and so excellent, he does not make pronoun accidents or things like that. He is doing this intentionally so that we see faith from another perspective. And then he goes on, and he has this exchange with the woman. She's healed from her hemorrhaging. Jesus moves on, but before he can get to the house, they run out and say, your daughter's dead. And he says, the Jewish leader doesn't get mad, but there's this moment where, you know, it's almost like, I I know you could have saved her, but we just were too late. And of course, Jesus, as he does in multiple scenes like this, says, no, no, nothing is ever beyond. Nothing is ever impossible for God. And he goes, and I love this scene, because he kind of sits down. He's like, hey, get up. And the little girl just gets up, right? Sit up, he says, go play. And she's like, yay. And she hops up and she's alive. Same sort of thing, right, at the funeral procession in Nain, where he just walks up to the dead body and says, get up, right? There is no finesse. There's no prayer. There's no incense or, you know, any sort of you know, show about this. Jesus walks in and he's like, hey, come on. And that's it. She's alive. And everyone is just, you know, beside themselves because she was dead and now she's alive. What we, we noted with the city in Nain is that, and I hope you've seen it again, the whole rising from the dead is a thing, right? It's not exceptional, Like I said a couple weeks ago, we knew about Lazarus. We could probably all recall Lazarus, right? But already in Luke, two other people have been raised from the dead. And so Jesus's presence in resurrecting life is something that goes beyond just that one exceptional moment with Lazarus. And who knows how often it happened, right? We only have a few stories, but it could have happened lots of times. And it's just these that Luke decided to tell us. Last thing I'll leave with you. In this final story of chapter 8, the healings have to do with more than just the physical. If we put this within a Jewish context, we've discussed a little bit about ritual cleanliness, right? To be a good Jew, you worship. And in order to worship at either temple or synagogue, you've got to be ritually clean. In order to be ritually clean, there is a long list of what not to do. One is, I was gonna say, one is not be dead. Good. Um, But one is not to be around the dead, right? Being in the presence of the dead makes you ritually unclean for a short time. Touching the dead makes you ritually unclean for a lot longer. The other thing that is sort of like death is blood. Touching blood makes you unclean. So whether that was you just fought a war and you're coming back from the battlefield, you would have touched blood. You are ritually unclean for a certain period of time. That's relatively easy for men. It's a problem for women. You're ritually unclean for over a week if you've touched blood, which means almost half the time. Women during their menstruation psych, you know, life cycle phase are ritually unclean half the time. This woman who is hemorrhaging would have never been clean. I mean, there would have been no time because you got to be clean. You got to not have touched blood for a week. And if she's got this constant bleeding, then she's never clean, which means she can never worship, which means she is not a good Jew. In the same way as the dead, Jesus is going beyond the physical healing, and he is doing a spiritual healing as well. Both of these people are now cleansed of whatever the world, the Jewish world, thought made them dirty. Jesus cleanses us in a deep way, a spiritual way. The flip side of that is Jesus is not afraid to get in the mess with us. Right, Jesus touches the dead, heals the bleeding, you name it. All those things that are messy, dirty, polluted, whatever you want to say, Jesus goes right in there to heal. And so for those of us in our own different stages of mess, should be confident that Jesus does not leave us alone there. Our friends might, our family might, Jesus does not. And that's some good news. Hey, John. <laughs> yeah. We get, a, uh, we get a little conflict of, of message here in this chapter specifically because Jesus heals the demoniac and then says, go tell everyone what God did for you. And then a few verses later, he heals Jairus' daughter and says to the people in the house, don't tell anybody I did this. The only thing I'll... I i do not have a really good answer for you except that in one, in one place, I think one way to interpret this is he was in a non-Jewish area with the demoniac. And so the man who was healed goes to tell people about the goodness of God because they don't know. For the Jews, they think they understand it in a particular way, And I don't think that it's too far-fetched for us to say that Jesus's intention is to remake what they think they understand. And so in that regard, it's a lot easier for Jesus to be the one who's telling the story than for some well-intended, nice person to tell the story they think Jesus is telling. And so in essence, it's, it's one of those, like, I wanna do it in the right way, in my own way, Whereas in, these other, in this other part of the world, they don't have any experience of God. And so, honestly, any exposure is good. Even if they might not get it all the way right, it's better than nothing. I just made that up. So, <clears throat> I'll check and see if the, someone's got a better answer. Thank you all very much. See you next week.